talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Willerskin is in the cloud. In the newsroom, Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard. Imagine I am talking to you from the future and we're in the 27th wave of COVID-19. And nothing has changed because most of us are vaccinated. Keep calm and common sense on. Here's Scott Thompson. Daddy's booked for the booster. Film at 11. Friday, before the show. So if all of a sudden I'm doing head dips, what happened to him? What happened to him? What happened to him? Is it the uh, is it signal going out? No, I think he's actually collapsed. Uh, just kidding. Uh, good afternoon. It is Hamilton Today. I'm Scott Thompson. Over there behind the board is Will Weber. In the newsroom, Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard. Another jam-packed show for today. Of course, still trying to figure out uh, and and get over and, and deal, rather, with the tragic news of the loss of uh, Boris Brat and all kinds of tributes coming in and uh, and just shock and, and dismay across the country uh, as uh, he certainly was uh, not only known, greatly known in Hamilton, but also across the country and around the world. So a uh, very, very sad uh, day as we try to digest uh, what has happened yesterday. And uh, we'll try to give you the latest on that coming up in just a little bit and some uh, uh, tributes to uh, to Boris Brat as well. All right, as I mentioned uh, just a little earlier on, uh, Daddy going for his uh, shot. Um, uh, had the first two. I'm an AZ boy. AZ off the top. <laughs> Easy off the top. And then uh, we all know what happened with that, with the uh, NASI and the Health Canada going, no, that way, no, this way, no, that way, no, this way. Uh, so then got the Pfizer and uh, then got COVID. So then, and, and that was seriously like, I think, a, a couple of days before I was scheduled to get the booster. So guess can't do that now. Uh, and then I've waited uh, in three months, they say, for you to wait. Uh, I'm going on a little over three months. Uh, my wife got hers last week. So, you know, I'm thinking, do I do this? Do I not? Do I not? And it's like, you know, what the heck? At the end of the day, um, uh, it's there for us. So so why not uh, take it? But my question is and will be to some of the experts that we're going to have on a little later on today is how long does this go on? Uh, am I going to get this every year? Because right now I think I'm, I'm, you know, I'm coming up to my third and uh, that's all in the first year. And that includes getting the virus. So are we going to have to take one of these every four to six months? Are we going to take one of these once a year? Uh, it, it, will it become like an annual flu shot? Because now at this point, it's, it's you know, and maybe, and, and I'm sure it, what we'll find out a little later is once they figure out what the exact vaccine will be for all of this that includes, uh, you know, a greater grasp of variants and such, which obviously the Pfizer and Moderna have, uh, and if you have both those shots fully vaccinated, and then the booster, of course, uh, if you get it, it will be mild. Of course, it doesn't stop the spread, but it does stop uh, you from becoming seriously ill. So, uh, and on that note, Ontario has said fourth dose approved. Uh, this is after the booster for those that are 60 plus. So, again, how, you know, and, and I'm not, you know, I believe in vaccination. Uh, you know, I remember getting them as a kid did my part all the way through this but you know what is the long-term uh program here or is it just too early to tell uh will it be something every six weeks will it or some uh, sorry something every six months or will it be something uh once a year uh once every couple of years uh i'm not sure that uh that we really have a handle on that at this point but we'll try to find some answers to those questions the other uh, the other big uh, thing on the docket today and for tomorrow is the budget, the federal budget coming down uh, tomorrow at four o'clock. And uh, a lot of uh, discussion as to and, and, you know, looking into the crystal ball, trying to figure out exactly what is going to happen uh, tomorrow. We've already heard leaked out big banks going to be hit with a three percent uh, surtax on, I believe it's one, over $1 billion or such. We'll, we'll get clarification there as well <laughs> once the budget comes out, of course. And, uh, so a little sneak peek there of, uh, of what's going on. Uh, and there you go. The, uh, and I guess the, the federal government said this, uh, uh, in the last election that they were going to do this, 
uh, and here you have it, tax the rich. So uh, the word populism, as we throw it around uh, and get thrown around on the right all the time, uh, that's really what this is, because at the end of the day, uh, we all want to see the banks pay their fair share. We want to see the big companies like the Amazons. Come on, pay back, give back, give back, give back, give back, after we've all lost so much. Uh, during this pandemic. But when does this become populist politics? When, at the end of the day, the banks just pass all of those increases on to you, and none of us are really ahead uh, of the game at all, although uh, it looks good for politicians. So we'll see how that all shakes out tomorrow, and uh, and, and uh, which will come down, actually, uh, at the 4 o'clock hour uh, during the show uh, coming up tomorrow. And... Uh, more interesting news coming out in regard to uh, Ukraine refugees, families wanting to come to Ontario. Uh, the Premier has announced uh, priority processing for those who uh, are uh, caught in Ukraine and uh, want to come to Canada, including a jobs hotline. So uh, more to get, uh, you know, at the end of the day, these people don't want to come here and they want to stay at home in their own country. Uh, but obviously, you know, not happening at this point, and uh, and they need some help. So uh, a local angle there. And uh, if you're a sports fan or a golf fan, Tiger Woods uh, in the Masters uh, this weekend, which uh, many were wondering whether he would even walk again uh, at one point after his car accident, uh, now saying he uh, thinks he can be a contender in all of this. So we'll talk about that uh, all coming up over the course of Hamilton today. This certainly isn't anything new, and man, you know, it seems every so often, every few weeks, every few months, um, we do something about the latest scam, whatever that is. And obviously, over the course of this global pandemic, and especially with lots of free money flying out the door, uh, there have been scams all plenty. Here's one that uh, has reared its ugly head in Hamilton again, and and again, not the first time. But a uh, Hamilton man says scammers have been using his home uh, in a fake rental unit online ad. And this has led to people showing up at his door and wanting to see the apartment. Some in tears, they realized that they had been conned, had actually uh, put down deposits on these sorts of, uh, on these units. Uh, but you can imagine what it's like not only for them losing the money, but on the homeowner who con- constantly has people banging on the door or looking in the property or what have you, uh, thinking that they can rent this. Uh, to tell us more about this sort of scam, what to look for, let's bring in jo- uh, Jeff Horncastle, Acting Client Communications Outreach Officer with the Canadian Anti-Fraud Centre, and with us now. Jeff, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Hi, Scott. Thanks for having me. How common is this one, Jeff? It's actually really common. Um, as you mentioned, uh, the pandemic has played a, uh, a large role in that Um so fraudsters, what they, they normally do is they'll create a classified ad uh, for property rentals that are available in ideal locations. The ads are posted with below average prices to attract more consumers, right? So they um, they post it at you know, a few hundred bucks less a month, so they know that they're going to get more bites on the ads. Um, a lot of times they'll even show a, like a legitimate-looking rental agreement that asks for personal information, um, once the offer is accepted, um, the consumers are instructed to pay first and last month's rent. And as you mentioned, um, they never see the money again because the, the ad, they find out that the ad is fraudulent. We know that uh, lots of people don't report this, which, is, of course, you should do to the Canadian Anti-Fraud Centre just so they can keep record of all of this and, and, and know where to direct attention and such. So how long can this go on, Jeff, before, you know, like, for example, this guy had like five people coming up to his house. How long does this go on before all of a sudden the ads get pulled down or they take off? It, it really depends. It can go on for, for a while. Um, they can get many uh, unfortunately, many victims on one ad. Um, unless it's reported, then you know, then then the ad can't be taken down. Um, unfortunately, you know, a lot of these scams are from overseas. Uh, payments are sent by e-transfer, um, and mm-hmm. sometimes even by by different means, right? By money service businesses and stuff like that. So um, <clears throat> it's just important. You know, there are steps to follow to make sure that you, you aren't a victim. Um, important to do your research. And, uh, but yeah, well, it's give us some, you know, 
Give us some of those tips, Jeff. What can we look for? Obviously, the first one you said, you know, too good to be true. Obviously, it might be. And that is that they you find a, a unit or whatever rental that is below the market value. Exactly. First red flag would be, you know, you see this property. Um, it's a few hundred bucks less per month. You That's a red flag, right? Um, <clears throat> so after, you know, uh, important to do online research. Um, in many cases, what these fraudsters will do is they'll, they'll go get an actual ad for property that might be for sale or whatever on a different website and post it on, on a website as it's for rent, right? Um, so if you do an online search, you may pull up another ad. Um, you can for the same place. That way. Exactly. Yeah. So they'll they'll go get they'll go steal pic- pictures from an ad that from a property that's for sale, and take those pictures and put you know create that ad for for the fraudulent rental um, scam that they're they're running. Um, if you're not sure what the market value is, make sure you do your research for the market value for for rentals in the area. Whenever possible, try to physically visit the property, <clears throat> schedule a showing, and confirm that it it's actually available. Are, are the main steps to follow. And what about setting deposits or first and last month? So unless you've actually physically visited the place and, and dived into your research and um, you're you're sure that you know you're you're able to move in, um, you've read through the lease agreement, um, then it would be safe to put your deposit down, right? So how hard is this to track, Jeff? How hard is it to police to catch these people? That's, uh, you know, like our, our mandate is to collect the information to support law enforcement with their investigations. Mm-hmm. I can't really comment on, on that too much, but um, generally, it, I mean, it, in general, it is challenging. That's why the, the number one method to protect yourself is being aware of how to protect yourself and what current scams are, right? Try to stay informed, and fraud prevention is that number one tool to, to fight this type of, of scam. And obviously, uh, when there's times uh, times are tough like they are now, the, they're out there preying on you even more, aren't they? Exactly. They they know that people are vulnerable, and they're um, especially with the market the way it is right now. They know that uh, if they see a rental at, at a lower cost, people are going to jump on it, right? Then, you know, in general, people are more vulnerable for yeah. for many reasons, and they're they're trying to capitalize on that. Jeff Horncastle with us, Acting Client and Communications Outreach Officer with the Canadian Anti-Fraud Centre, uh, talking about uh, one of many scams going on during a global pandemic, that being your rental, not what it appears. And as Jeff says, make sure you do your homework. Jeff, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Let's talk about COVID-19, where we are with, uh, I believe, what could be a sixth wave. We'll ask for clarification there. And uh, the Ontario government announcing that those who are 60 plus will be avail- uh, eligible for their fourth, uh, fourth dose of COVID-19 vaccination. To talk more about all of this, Dr. Omar Khan with us, Assistant Professor, Institute of Biomedical Engineering and Department of Immunology, University of Toronto, and is with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. As always, hope you're doing well. Doing well. Hope you're doing well, too. Thanks so much. Uh, Doctor, can you help us out with the fourth and fifth and sixth wave here? Uh, I got sick over Christmas, and uh, I thought that was the fourth wave. So how do we get from fourth to sixth? (laughs) Well, we we did have... Lulls and you know what's interesting, effect. doctor? You're the fourth doctor I've asked about this since the beginning of the week, and they've all chuckled when I've asked that question. <laughs> Why is okay. that? I think to give the broadest possible answer, we have been stuck in a cycle where we have done an exceptional job here in Canada to deal with it, and we've brought down our numbers locally, and then we got hit with something that came from somewhere else because... They, case numbers were just too high somewhere else, drove some new evolution and that traveled and got here and kind of put us back in the same spot where we had to deal with rising infections. So it's a cycle and it's unfortunately caused because we haven't really dealt with this on a global scale. So uh, does the wave, the numbering of the waves help us or does it, does it instill fear? I'm not sure if it, well, let's look at it from the flu perspective. We have a wave of the flu every year. 
And mm -hmm. we know that we are okay with that because generally with the flu, we have less severity and it's something that we can easily manage. I think with uh, you know, this novel coronavirus, it is something that was new to us and it's, you know, we're trying to figure out how to best get out of this and realizing that it's really important to kind of deal with this from a global perspective. But yeah, the, the numbering kind of, it is just the fact, you know, you see the lull in, in, in cases and then you see them come back up. And then when it moves back up, it is another wave. Um, uh, it's interesting, and I just want to do this for clarification. Um, uh, you, you used the flu comparison at the beginning of this. People rejected that and, and didn't want to. So let's just clarify why we're using that now and how vaccination has allowed us to be at that point. I think when I say that, we have seasonal flu, right? So it's mm -hmm. here for a season and then it goes away and it comes back. So in that way, it is also like a cycle. So we have these waves. Right. But the comparison between the flu and coronavirus is based solely on, you know, is this the same morbidity, mortality as the flu? And it wasn't because the coronavirus is, was much worse and causing a lot more uh medical issues and problems, especially with people with comorbidities. So on that front, it's not the same, but the idea of it having seasonal effect is right. what, what's kind of happening here. It's like a, a cyclical comparison. So uh, yeah. how different is, uh, say, the fourth, fifth, six, or sixth, whatever you want to call it, to a one and two and three? And the fact that we have, I think it's over 90% of uh, Ontarians 12 plus vaccinated now, how does that change this discussion? They're being driven by new mutants. So the virus has evolved and it's become slightly biologically different. And in doing so, the excellent immunity we have from our vaccines, our immune system is unable to quite recognize it because it's genetically different. It looks different. So our immune system doesn't quite, some, some people's immune system sees it and says, this looks brand new. I'm going to restart my immune processes. Whereas some other people, their immune system sees it and says, I think I do recognize it. And I'm going to use those previously made antibodies to fight this. And that's kind of, where this problem's coming from. So we had, uh, you know, alpha, you know, we had beta, we had delta, and now Omicron BA1, Omicron BA2. So these are being driven by different versions of the virus. We're talking, uh, obviously, because uh, Ontario announcing 60-plus uh, able for their uh, fourth dose, eligible for their four fourth dose this week. Um uh, again, you know, first dose, then second dose, and and then the booster shot came. Uh, some of us got sick before that, which I think is one of the reasons there's the delay in the uptake of the booster. Uh, and now we're looking for four shots. So uh, that's, for me, three inside of one year. How often are we going to have to take these shots? Will it be like a flu shot where it will be once a year? Will it be for once every couple of years? And I know I'm asking you questions you can't answer yet. Or is this the sort of thing where every few months, like four to six months, we might need one? Well, it shouldn't be as frequent going forward. That's the hope. And here's the reason. The, the value of the boost is that we are trying to use your pre-existing antibodies to fight the brand new version of the virus. And to do that more efficiently, you need to make sure you have a lot of those antibodies. So by getting a boost, quickly bring up your antibody levels. And although your antibodies aren't as efficient at fighting the new version of the coronavirus, having more of them just overwhelms it. So that's the idea. But the sustainable long-term solution is a, a, a new updated vaccine that's very Omicron specific and mm -hmm. what we think will be the future of the virus as well. So an updated version and then deploying that globally so that everybody has the same level of protection. Everybody clears the infection. We keep those infection numbers down and that's how we slow down viral evolution. We so it, yeah, no, go ahead. Yeah. So viral evolution is a problem and bringing infection numbers down slows viral evolution and keeps our vaccines effective longer. So while we wait for the updated vaccine, which are, currently in clinical trials we have to make use of the current tool we have which is right. the vaccine that 
we made for the original version that works great for the original version. Unfortunately, we're not dealing with the original version. So is it too early for us, for you to know how long this this is good in us, how long it is effective in us? Will that take time before we realize at what point your your protection starts to diminish? Well, here's the thing. The vaccines that everyone got, they're actually still working and they're, they're great. You have long-term protection and long-term immunity against the original version of the virus. Right. The problem now is that we've let it evolve too quickly. And because, again, for example, like we did a phenomenal job here in Canada, you know, and we showed that we can bring down numbers, no problem. The rest of the world didn't get that. And they drove that evolution and we're back to where we are. And that's why we need to break out of the cycle. So the hope is once we have these new tools, the Omicron and beyond specific vaccines, those really got to get out there. Otherwise, we're going to be dealing with this and it's awful. What about boosters? We've only got about 30 seconds left here, doctor. What about boosters and teenagers, uh, younger people? Yeah, boosters are great because they'll help you clear infection faster. And that means less viral evolution events, which means slower evolution. And then, so that's what we want. Dr. Omar Khan with us, Assistant Professor, Institute of Biomedical Engineering and Department of Immunology, University of Toronto. Doctor, as always, thanks so much for the time and clarity. Much appreciated. Be well. All right. Take care. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Will Weber just telling us, uh, going on his social media pages and just the, you know, the outpouring of, um, of grief and such for the loss of Boris Braun and just what he meant to the community and, uh, and specifically how he brought classical music to the common person. You know, many of us are intimidated and, and, and have a certain view of it. And Boris seemed to, uh, bridge that gap per se. And, uh, obviously a tragic string of events came together over the course of yesterday and then learning that the victim of a hit and run uh, Hamilton collision was, in fact, uh, Boris Brat. Uh, as we continue to make sense of what happened, uh, let's bring in Constable uh, Indy Barrage. He is a media, uh, the media relations officer for Hamilton Police Service and is with us now. Indy, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm well. Thanks for having us on your show there today. Obviously, uh, whenever anything like this happens, it's it's uh, it's very much a tragedy. But when it's someone that everybody at least knows of, uh, obviously it resonates uh, even more. But this is not that any of these are ever normal in any way. But there was a string of events here. And is any way you can sign? And I understand this is all still under investigation and such. But can you tell us the string of events that 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 uh, took place that got us to where we are? Yeah, do you know what? It's still being investigated, and what, do you know what? What's making it a little more difficult, and uh, it's going to take some time, is that uh, SIU has invoked their mandate on a certain part of the investigation, and some of the officers that were had involvement with uh, our suspect, the suspect vehicle, earlier on prior to uh, so the collision and uh, the arrest, are now subject officers. So because we can't interact or communicate with them, there's factors or little parts of... Uh, the i guess the whole story that are missing so we're just uh, working away at it but what i can tell you that we do know at this time is that uh, just after 10 a.m uh, hamilton police received 911 calls for a vehicle driving the wrong on the wrong side of the road on the hamilton mountain and uh, dispatchers issued a all-car broadcast uh, requesting patrol officers to look out for this vehicle and uh you know what, there were some circumstances. We had some involvement with the vehicle, and at approximately 10.20 a.m., um, the, I guess, the unfortunate event, um, the hit-and-run occurred at uh, Park uh, Street South and Markland Street, uh, where, as we know, uh, Boris Brat was uh, struck by the vehicle, and the vehicle fled the scene. Um, Boris Brat was transported to hospital and uh, later succumbed to his injuries. And was the incident involving uh, the alleged suspect uh, with police, did that happen before um, uh, before Mr. Brott was, was struck, or was that after? Do we know? Yeah, so there, there was uh, some uh, police involvement with the vehicle. I, to, what circa, to what the circumstances were, we're still working that out at this time. Right. Like I said, some of the officers are subject officers in the SIU uh, 
where SIU's invoked their mandate. So we haven't had the opportunity to speak with them and uh, break down what transpired. Um, and once it kind of uh, gets a little bit clarified, it, we'll have more clarification once SIU does their part. And then uh, we'll be able to go a little further into this investigation. So once again, Indian, in like in an unrelated uh, discussions uh, per se, why? When does the SIU become involved? Why is the SIU involved here? So the SIU is uh, is mandated to investigate any interactions involving police, where there's been a death, serious injury, or allegation of sexual assault, or if someone has uh, been shot at. Um, in this case, um, what happened here is uh, SIU is investigating the injury sustained during the arrest of the suspect. So that's the portion that they're investigating. So that'd be the, uh, I guess, the interaction that uh, people may have seen at uh, Garth, just at where the arrest took place. Um, three officers, along with the suspect, were transported to hospital, um, and they had all sustained injuries. The uh, three officers are, have since been released from hospital, as along with the uh, the suspect. Um, but because the suspect uh, did sustain some injuries or there was uh, injuries that were sustained at some uh, believe me some point during the uh, interaction, SIU invoked their mandate. So the officers involved are fine and there's no further injuries? Uh, they did sustain injuries, but they, uh, they've been treated and released from hospital uh, with uh, minor injuries. And when do you think you'll be able or, uh, you know, with SIU involved in such, you'll be able to tell the public more? Any idea with that, Indy? There's no say. Like it really just does depend on how uh, how long the SIU's investigation takes, and then we'll finally be able to uh, start speaking with some of the other officers, the subject officers, I guess that you say that uh, we haven't had a chance to speak to. That might be able to fill in some of the gaps that we're missing. All right, uh, Andy Barrage with us, media constable with the uh, media relations department, Hamilton Police Service, and will uh, certainly tell us more as soon as they are able to. Andy, thanks so much for sharing what you can. Much appreciated. Be well. And thanks for having us. Let's talk about the Sound of Music Festival. I know, uh, I mean, for the longest time, sorry, it's canceled, or we're going to do this, we're going to do that. Uh, but now it looks like it is on. And June 11th through the 19th of this year, and a whole slate of acts. Uh, let's bring in Miles Russick, CEO of Burlington Sound of Music Festival. He's with us now. Miles, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Hey, Scott, I am doing great. You have no idea how good it felt to hit send on a media release that did not start out, I'm sorry to say. I'm beside myself with excitement with the fact that we are back, and we are back in a big way. So thank you for having me on the show. I appreciate it. No, I mean, people, you know, uh, uh, Weber and I were talking off uh, off air that, you know, so many people are going to be uh, so anxious to get out and participate in stuff like this. Uh, I think you're going to get a big turnout this year. Uh, any we're, idea? We're hoping for record numbers. We really are. I'm, I'm hoping to see people out in droves. The most we've ever seen is 300,000 people. I want to send that so far in the rearview mirror that we'll be celebrating for years to come. So, uh, did you on? Were you questioning this year at all? I mean, like, take us back in in time here, because uh, it's been over two years now. Uh, did you think we would get to this point? Were you were you hoping, especially after last year? Yeah, you know, we were hopefully optimistic. We started planning the festival, like we really started throwing offers out at artists in December with this this hopeful optimism that we will be back in some capacity. And we didn't know what that would look like. We didn't know if that meant you know, social distancing or masks or, or vaccine passports. We had no idea. We were prepared to do all of it. We just wanted to come back after two years. I mean, you know, I know everyone's tired of the word pivot, but we mm. pivoted so much through the last two years to still bring some live music in some capacity. But of course, none of it is the same as Canada's largest free outdoor music festival. So you know, we planned with the hopes of coming back now that restrictions are gone. And I knock on wood that, you know, yeah. we're going to see something resembling normal. Uh, we're thrilled. We're just thrilled. So tell us about this year's lineup, June 11 to 19. Yeah. So June 11th is uh, that is our paid ticketed show live on the lake. And that's the one that helps us, you know, keep the, the free festival running as a free festival. So that is our our three days grace and Tim Hicks, the beaches and Saving Abel. Uh, so again, that is our, our paid ticketed show. But then we launch into the full-blown free festival. And so uh, June 12 to 15, we're going to have club series. 
We've got some fantastic names coming in from the East Coast, from Toronto, from the West Coast. Uh, we've really brought in some big names this year for club series. And again, all free. So Connor Gaines, Brandon Howard Roy, like these guys are going to be free playing at Wendell Clark's and Joe Dogs. We get over to the free festival in Spencer Smith Park, June 16 to 19. And honestly, when I was putting offers out for this year, we wanted a party. And that's all we could think of is let's build a party. So I'll be the first to admit, this is a little bit of a heavier festival than we're normally <laughs> used to. I was but, about I mean, to ask got, you, are there yeah. any changes this year? Is there, is there anything over the course of the pandemic you've learned or anything you're going to do differently to this year's event? There's the things that are different are, are I think, good things. Um, you know, we're going to try to incorporate a lot more technology. We're going to try to incorporate going as cashless as we mm. can. Um, like pieces like that. But in terms of like, did we scale anything down or remove anything? No. If anything, we're coming back bigger and better than we ever have. I mean, some of the names on our line, Skid Row, Fuel, Blackstone Cherry, The Trues, The Tea Party, High Valley, Washboard Union. And these are all for free. Like this doesn't happen. And yet here we are. And I think personally, I mean, they pay me to say it, but my excitement is real. I think this is going to be an amazing year. I think people are going to have a great time. I think we're going to see a normal experience. Uh, and I, I just think it's going to be a banger. You can hear the passion in his voice. It's coming back. Uh, the Sound of Music Festival, Spencer Smith Park, June 11 through the 19th of this year. Miles Russick with the CEO of the Burlington Sound of Music Festival. Congratulations, Miles. Uh, Well-deserved the you. excitement and good luck with this year's event. Thank you so much. Head over to soundofmusic.ca for all the details. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right, 4 o'clock tomorrow afternoon, the budget comes out. Uh, obviously, uh, a lot of concern around this simply because of where we are uh, with the uh, global pandemic. To talk more about all of this, let's bring in David Alexandra Brassard, Chief Economist, Chartered Professional Accountants of Canada, and is with us now. David, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Hello, Scott. Well, thanks for having me. So considering uh, we're uh, hopefully coming out of a global pandemic and, and where we are with inflation and such, how significant is this budget compared to others? Does this one hold more of a punch than others? Uh, I think it does, because um, we will move on from uh, being COVID-19 centered um, to probably go for climate change, housing affordabilities and all other surrounding issues. So uh, we're getting a few things leaked out uh, today before it actually comes out, including um, the announcement of uh, a bank surcharge of about 3% or 3% uh, for those, I believe, it's earning over a billion dollars. Also, a ban on foreign home buyers uh, in the housing market for two years. Your thoughts? Um, regarding the, the surcharge of, um, of, of banks, um, I understand where they come from. Um, I'm wondering if it's a bit divisive. Um, that's just my, my concerns. Um, and when it comes to housing, um, the ban on foreign buying is, once again, understandable as well. Will it slow down the, the market as much as boosting the, the supply of housing could? Um, that's a good question. So, uh, as you mentioned, uh, I guess the devil's in the details here. Uh, getting back to the bank surtax, uh, the concern is is that this will just get passed on to consumers anyway, uh, and therefore, um, you know, it, it certainly looks good, but isn't necessarily pack the punch that we think it does. Is that accurate? Yeah, uh, yeah, that's pretty accurate. Usually, that's always uh, that's always the issue that we have um, when, when we when we have taxation is that you can pass it to consumers. And in this case, um, I'm, I'm, once again, uh, you're, pro you're probably right on point. It will pass on to consumers. Um, so how, how, what form could it take? Um, higher rates, probably. Uh, and getting back to the ban on foreign ownership, uh, I just did an interview, uh, Ian Lee, uh, Sprott School of Business, Carlton, we've had him on many times. Uh, he said that the foreign ownership uh, nationally is sitting at about 5% and says it's more of a supply issue than, uh, than this. Does, is this. does this sound more populist than really have a result for you from an accountant's perspective? Yeah, it does, it does, seem, uh, it does seem populist. Um, and... The figure of 5% is right, uh, and 
even in Vancouver and Toronto, um, it's 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 around that average. It's a bit higher, but not that much. Um, it's the key is supply, uh, of course. We need we need more housing in metropolitan areas. Um, but the the federal government has other plans um, to promote supply. So, what do you expect to see tomorrow, and uh, what do you want to see? Is there a difference? <laughs> there there is a, a slight. Bit difference. Um, I'm expecting to see um, something for um, for less uh, financially able households uh, when it comes to inflation. Um, we, we might see something there. Um, I'm expecting to see um, to see uh, money going towards climate change. Um, what I'm hoping for, I would say, in in, in those things, because because it's it, the gov- the government's in a strange balancing act. Uh, we're coming out of a pandemic with a lot of debt. Uh, and we're going to uh, we're going forward with uh, climate change uh, mitigation. So I'm hoping um, that we're we're not just um, increasing the, the spending, uh, and that we keep in mind that eventually we'll have to balance the budget. That's what I'm hoping for. This is a pretty fine line because there's a lot on the table that they want to do in regard to climate change or or even whether it's, you know, suggestions of pharmacare and dental care and such for the future. And then balancing, uh, obviously, the, the large expenditures through a pandemic. Um, do we have to alter this grocery list to pay the debt first? Um, I, we probably should. I'm not expecting we will. Uh, because of the NDP uh, deal with the Liberals, um, but there's um, climate change is kind of a, an urgent matter um, by itself. So I understand, but but climate change is not taking the much of the funds. Um, the the money allocated towards there is it's mostly going to go through carbon pricing. Um, but I think that the the thing we should we should hope as Canadians is a bit more accountabilities. Uh, regarding uh, where the the finances of Canada are are going, um, mm. so maybe a bit more than a simple debt to GDP ratio, um, maybe a more maybe more accountability on that front. David Alexandra Broussard with us, chief economist, chartered professional accountants of Canada, weighing in on uh, what we may see tomorrow in the upcoming federal budget. David, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks for having me. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Over the past several weeks, the world has watched in horror as the innocent people of Ukraine have been under attack by the full force of the Russian army. And while we admire the spirit of Ukrainians and the incredible defense they're mounting, we also know that a humanitarian disaster is underway. There you have it, Premier Ford, earlier on today uh, at a news conference talking about the Ontario government announcing new supports for Ukraine refugees, Ukrainian refugees, who, uh, who are coming to the province, including a dedicated hotline that will connect arrivals with employers, a uh, hotline email address that will connect uh, them with job search assistant and local employers. Uh, and to talk more about all of this, Monty McNaughton is with us, Minister of Labor, Training and Skills Development, and with us now. Monty, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing well, Scott. Great to be uh, back on your show. Thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this. What uh, What exactly is Ontario going to do over and above the ordinary to help those from Ukraine who want to settle here? Well, certainly um, it's a heartbreaking situation we're seeing uh, out of Ukraine and we've seen for the last uh, four weeks. Um, We're really stepping up to make sure that that transition is as smooth as possible for Ukrainians uh, to come here to Ontario and really to find uh, a safe haven. Uh, We're working uh, closely with the the federal government. I was speaking this morning uh, with the federal minister of immigration, uh, Sean Fraser. I mean, obviously the, the federal government's responsible for getting Ukrainians here, but we've stepped up with uh, supports, whether it's uh, OHEP coverage, uh, access to a school for the kids that are coming, uh, child care, uh, housing, and of course, employment supports to help them transition uh, into meaningful jobs here in Ontario. Is this for those that are coming here for, on a te- for a temporary stay and hope to go back, or those that would like to come here and settle, perhaps a family here? 
Well, I, I think we're going to see both, uh, quite honestly. I mean, the federal government, uh, to their credit, has accelerated uh, that immigration uh, and refugee process so they can come here uh, more quickly. I think across Canada uh, now there's about 10,000 Ukrainians that have come. Uh, here in Ontario, we expect there could be up to 40,000 uh, Ukrainians. So it really is all hands on deck. We're working uh, with the federal government. Of course, Ontario stepped up to the tune of uh, about $390 million today if we receive 40,000 uh, refugees. And we're also working with our municipal governments, especially on the housing side. I was just about to ask that. What about accommodation if people start arriving? Well, it, it's amazing. I mean, uh, there are so many uh, people in the Ukrainian uh, community that have stepped up. So today in Ontario, uh, we have 375,000 uh, people with Ukrainian uh, background living here. Uh, thousands of them have volunteered. They've stepped forward to offer uh, their homes, uh, basements and, and bedrooms to uh, Ukrainian uh, refugees. And of course, others have stepped up as well. I think of uh, faith communities, churches across the province, they're taking uh, refugees in. So I, I think that's going to be you know, a big help. And it really does speak to the incredible uh, Ontario spirit that we have. But furthermore, at the announcement today, we are working with municipalities to identify a really an inventory of shelter that's available uh, for refugees. So it, it's all hands on deck to come up with a, a solution and we're making a great progress. And talk a little bit about the uh, employer hotline and trying to link these people up with employers here. Yeah, I, I think this, uh, again, speaks to the incredible people we have uh, in Ontario. Uh, so far, uh, there's employers that have stepped up, uh, labor unions, uh, trade associations, and we so far have 30,000 jobs uh, identified for Ukrainian refugees uh, when they come here. Now, we know uh, the first uh, number of people that are coming are going to be uh, women and children, so we're really focused on uh, mm. opportunities uh, for women and uh, again employers are stepping up uh, on this front but one of the challenges we do have in Ontario today like 340,000 jobs are going unfilled so there really is uh, a lot of opportunities here for Ukrainians they're they're talented they're hardworking, and we just really want to make that transition as smooth as possible. Great idea. Ontario government announcing new supports for Ukrainian refugees who come to the province along with the federal government. Monty McNaughton with us, Minister of Labor, Training and Skills Development. Monty, thanks for the time as always. Be well. Thanks, Scott. Stay safe. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Lots of tributes pouring in for Boris Broad, who lost his life yesterday at the hands of a hit-and-run driver in Hamilton uh, yesterday morning. And uh, we were talking to Hamilton Police Service earlier on. They're still trying to figure out exactly what did happen uh, as the whole thing is still under investigation. But this is the time to uh, talk about the man and everything he did for uh, not only music, but for the hammer and making uh, this type of music or orchestral music uh, very much accessible to the average person and I didn't realize this but this is Chuck Mangione's land of make-believe and it was the Hamilton Philharmonic Orchestra that you hear in this incredible let's bring in Bob Bertina former Hamilton mayor and trying again former liberal MP for Hamilton East Stony Creek and former CHML morning show host he is with us now Bob great to have you back hope you're doing well I am and uh, although sadly reflecting on the passing of of Boris brought it was so tragic and I, I really appreciate the opportunity Scott to highlight a couple of things in Boris's uh, unbelievable career because that music of uh, Chuck Man Jones um, was recorded at Massey Hall the, mm. the hit recording using the Hamilton Philharmonic and I was talking to uh, one of the instrumentalists Natalie Misko who was uh, in that recording along with Mark Tahiti and people who knew the Philharmonic would know all of the the people, including the Canadian Brass. Remember the Canadian yeah, Brass yeah. was part mm -hmm. of it. That was part of Boris Brat's contribution to not only Hamilton music, but Canadian music, along with the manager, Betty Webster, and Betty's uh, wonderful daughter, Ardith, who became Boris's wife. And so there's a Hamilton family connection. Even the Pakins, Marnie and Larry Pakin, yeah. you know, Steve's uh, mom and dad were mm -hmm. on the board of directors at the time. All this wonderful stuff was happening. You know, the DeFasco performance with, with the orchestra, 
the one I, I wanted to tell you about was 1972 Grey Cup Festival because there was a Hamilton Philharmonic component. Boris actually wrote a piece of music to go along with uh, the many things that occurred in this particular concert. I was in it. The former great CVC host, Max Ferguson, had a, a bit of a comedy routine in the orchestra, and I was sort of an offstage voice. But that all took place uh, as part of the 1972 Grey Cup Festival. So the comments that you were making about his outreach to everybody, you know, not just sort of mm. the classical music uh, uh, aficionados, uh, is part of his gift to the city. And, you know, he was, um, the rehearsal that we had taught me a lesson, Scott, because the rehearsal was set for, let's say, 9 o'clock in the morning. Mm -hmm. And so I walked into Hamilton Place at like 9.01, and the whole orchestra (laughs) is sitting on stage, and Boris is standing there with his arms crossed, because their rehearsal time is very succinct. It's very structured, you know. So I have to walk the whole length. Uh, up to the stage to get in my position and then he nods at me and then we go through the the rehearsal so i learned to be on time uh timing is everything in music did he have much of an influence over the balkan strings bob actually he knew (laughs) i played the mandolin and asked me if i would consider sitting in with the orchestra oh my the vivaldi mandolin concerto and i told him absolutely not but i <laughs> oh man! After the previous previous experience of being a minute late, there's no way you wanted to take on that extra challenge. Well, I did actually play my clarinet at a Christmas concert. A few, Boris wasn't there then, but uh, so I did have my gig with the, the Hamilton Philharmonic. But uh, Boris was uh, his his remarkable family had a wonderful home. The last time I saw him actually was on Spark Street in Ottawa. They were in town for uh, he and Artith for. Looking for uh, grant uh, situations, you know, for the orchestra, who's always mm-hmm. uh, finding ways to, to, to get revenue to run the place. And it was so nice because I heard this, Bob, you know, finally somebody we recognize. Because when you're in Ottawa in the hallways yeah. of, you know, government, you, you don't know who's where or what. You don't even know where you're going half the time. Neither do we. <laughs> but, but it was good to see an old friend, and uh, we had a nice a drink and a sandwich on Spark Street and talked about the future of his orchestra, which uh, is the National Academy Orchestra, is a remarkable opportunity for young musicians to grow into professional musicianship. And everyone's wondering now how it's going to continue on without Mm. Boris, but I'm sure Artif will find a way to do it. Bob, thank you so much for uh, reaching out and telling the stories. And uh, obviously, you two go way back, so uh, lots of them there. I'm sure we could go on. I'm sure we could go on for about an hour. But thanks so much for sharing uh, the stories with us, Bob. Much appreciated. Appreciate the chance. Thanks, Scott. All right, Bob Bertina, former mayor of Hamilton, trying again, former uh, Liberal MP for uh, Hamilton East Stony Creek and CHML Morning Host. Chatting about uh, Boris Broad and what he meant to this city, what he meant to uh, a lot of people, uh, as far as those who love uh, orchestral mu- music and such, and 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 the people that he touched. And I remember only interviewing him a couple of times, but um, he he was always so passionate about bringing the music to not only a younger audience, but those that maybe not uh, exposed to classical or ensemble music or orchestral music, and and made it very accessible, which uh, I, I think is is one of the reasons people loved him so. Let's bring in Dave Tabone, uh, director of BR Expression, vocal ensemble from the Hamilton-Wentworth Catholic District School Board, and is with us now. Dave, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Thanks, Scott. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Obviously, you're as shocked as everybody is uh, in hearing about this. What did Boris mean to you? What did he mean to uh, BR Expression? Well, you know, it was amazing because um, we started our relationship probably about 20 years ago, and... um, the BR Expression is, is a contemporary vocal ensemble, and Boris is predominantly known as the classical man behind the baton in the city, but yep. he um, he loved contemporary music as well, and he loved to reach students. So we reached out to our group, and uh, we had a 150-voice choir back then, a vocal group, and we did a show, and then he continued to work with us on an ongoing relationship for over 20 years, and it was outstanding. Every year he would do um, school concerts in November, 
And he'd bring out our students, and we would put a program together. In fact, the last one I remember, if I'm correct, was our British Invasion. And uh, there's copies of it where we're performing Bohemian Rhapsody with his National Academy Orchestra. It was just an epic epic experience for the students. Um, And they're on stage. I'm getting chills just thinking about that. I can imagine what it must have been like for the students. It it was outstanding, like beyond outstanding. And, And Boris, you know, he's... He's the hippest nerd in so many ways. Yeah. He's just outstanding. Yeah. Like he was, because he he was so ingra- embedded in classical music. And then when we we had to get him to do, there's some footage of him shaking his head at that part where you see in the, uh, you know, where they yeah. get to that crazy yeah. epic section. Yeah. And and Boris is on stage with his baton, shaking his head in front of two thousand students at Hamilton Place. And it was just, it was like surreal, um, absolutely surreal. How important is it to have a mentor like that touch the kids, uh, bring this experience to them? Well, you know what? It, it was crazy because I always like to uh, give the kids like a little bit of background on who Boris is, um, especially when there's new kids. And, and the cool thing is, is that he also worked with my wife's group, the Junior Expression. And we would have little, uh, you know, I would put on footage of Boris and just so they knew exactly how amazing this man was you know the recipient of the order of canada and what he's done as a conductor in our city and for our country so then when the kids they had so much of this info when they got to actually meet boris on stage they really did believe they were meeting this this celebrity who's a uh, so that coupled with the fact that his orchestra always sounded so outstanding that the kids um they, they were literally blown away, absolutely blown away. And it's, it's sad to even last night when it happened, I was getting a um, multitude of students, alumni students, who were reaching out to me, who were touched by um, his death, like just absolutely cherishing the moments, the, the experiences that they got to um, achieve because Boris was in front of them directing them. And many, you know, there's a stigma sort of around classical or orchestral music uh, and such. And he would very much bridge that gap. He tried to make this music accessible to everybody and likable to everybody. Absolutely. In fact, um, Grain Rockingham um, emceed one of our shows from the uh, Hampton Spectator, I remember. Mm-hmm. And he was doing the, you know, he would emcee this and we were doing Beatles and we were doing, literally, we were doing Guns N' Roses. And um, <laughs> it, was, it was everything, but with an orchestra. And the students in the audience were just saying, uh, you know, this is amazing because he's bringing the, the, the classical experience to something that resonates with the students. And there's lots of evidence through pop music of that, that's for sure. Dave Tabone with us, director of BR Expression, vocal ensemble from the Hamilton Wentworth Catholic District School Board, talking about the memory of Boris Brat. Dave, thanks for sharing the memories. Much appreciated. Take care. Be well. Thanks so much for having me on. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Let's bring in Elliot Tepper, uh, Professor Elliot Tepper, political science, Carleton University. The reason being uh, the Chinese Communist Party, are they pushing for a war crime investigation into the events that have taken place in Ukraine? Is this their way of trying to curb the narrative, get ahead of things, or are they changing their position on Vladimir Putin? Elliot Tepper is with us now. Elliot, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Oh, thank you, Scott. Same to you. Uh, when you first see this, Elliot, it raises the eyebrow. Then as you read into it, it's they're looking for proof, uh, looking for this, looking for that. What is the objective here? What is China doing? Sorting that out is tricky. They have agreed that an investigation is needed. But then, as you say, if you look a little more closely, uh, they say, well, you know, all parties should show restraint as if <laughs> as if the Ukrainians have attacked Russia or something. The... Uh, Figuring out their their uh, long-term and short-term goals and tactics is tricky. They apparently do wish to continue their no-limits relationship with, with Russia. They do have an overwhelming, firm, uh, deep commitment to seeing to it that the West is weakened. So the whole position on let's, let's weaken NATO, let's weaken uh, U.S. dominance, essentially, that's in both states' revisionist and revanchist uh, interest. They, they, their state power counts on, as the Chinese say, the West is declining and the East is rising. So anything they can do to help promote that, and which means in this case supporting Russia and its position about NATO, and that the U.S. is actually the responsible party, the whole reason there is a problem in 
Ukraine is entirely due to the American policy of supporting NATO expansion. So, so what you see in front of you is America's fault. All of that is very consistent. On the other hand, they wish to put themselves forward as a responsible global player, quite ready to inherit the mantle after the U.S. and the Western democracies are, are shown to be incapable of doing so. They want to advance their own position as a great power, a responsible great power. It's tricky for them. I'm having a hard time keeping a straight face here, Elliot. Uh, they're looking for proof. Uh, I'm sure President Zelensky could provide them with ample proof. Uh, if not, take a peek at a satellite image or two, and maybe that will uh, convince you. How can you make statements like this that you're concerned about what's going on in Ukraine and then saying it's, uh, quote, it is regrettable that the exposure of the Bucha incident, the U.S., the initiator of the Ukraine crisis, has not shown any signs of urging peace or promoting talks? Huh? How can you say how can you say one thing and then the other? Well, the consistent policy all from the beginning is we urge talks, we we want negotiations, we want peace, and indeed they do need peace because to continue with the conversation, they have far more invested in the existing international economic order uh, than does Russia. They can't afford to have the world go into recession when their own economic uh, relationships with the with the whole world are so intertwined. The uh, state media is also broadcasting separately the Russian line that what you see in front of you, uh, Scott, is actually staged by the Ukrainians. So those yeah. aren't real. That's basically false news. This is unsustainable. They know it's unsustainable. And now they have to figure how they can carry on walking that tightrope and I believe they cannot do so without becoming increasingly absurd, as you would put it, uh, in their position. Um, so obviously this is a lot of smoke and mirrors at this point as opposed to hope. Let me ask you this, Elliot. If this goes south for Russia, and, and, and let's be honest, they, they weren't able to take Kiev, so lots are looking at this as already a huge failure for Russia. So at what point does... China cut ties. How d d does Russia just keep going down, uh, you know, in a ball of flames, taking China with it? At what point do they separate themselves? The, the situation is that it's win-win for China. If, if uh, Mr. Putin succeeds, and he might still uh, incorporate, incorporate Ukraine into greater Russia, expand there and then into Moldova, probably, and of course, Belarus, and change the geopolitics of the region, then they've then that suits, uh, that suits China's interest as well, weakening NATO, weakening the EU, weakening Europe, uh, and, of course, America. On the other hand, if Russia does uh, poorly there, then they become increasingly dependent, uh, increasingly subordinate to the emerging China and the vast treasure house that is the Russian economy, all those, not just the uh, coal and gas and uh, oil, but also the mineral wealth and, uh, and the wheat all of the resources of this, uh, at that point, declining former claimant to being a superpower would accrue to China. So you can say that China wins no matter what, but they can't win, Scott, if, if they are, as, and that's what you're asking, if they are tying themselves to war criminals. And, and let's not forget what our opinion was of China before all of this even happened uh, with regard to the two Michaels and such. And, you know, polling over 90 percent of Canadians don't have a favorable view of the Chinese Communist Party. Has what has happened with Russia changed our view of China? Because China is just as controlling. The only difference is they're not as violent or at least publicly. So has has what's happening with Russia made us more. Uh, concerned or cautious towards China, or is there just too much money there, whereas there's not much in Russia? There's, um, <laughs> there's no doubt that the reputational cost to China is now becoming clearer and clearer in Canada due to the two Michaels, because before that, there was quite a different view of China. But that's global. Now, China's view around the world, the reputational cost to China around the world, has sharply plummeted. But let's focus on this particular issue, which is, should there be international investigations of war crimes and crimes against humanity? What about Tibet? What about the Uyghurs? Mm. What's going yeah. on in Hong Kong? And let's keep an eye on, uh, on Taiwan and uh, what would happen if 
all these uh, measures now being put in place in the West against, you know, invading and occupying a neighboring state. Obviously, Taiwan's not a state, but uh, it's a uh, it is not in the Western view, simply a, a wayward uh, province. So if sorry, go ahead. Intertwined. So um, if China, either way, if, if, if Russia continues to go down, this will, be, this will be harder on China, will it not? And again, many have talked about how what's, being, what's happening with Russia, that, that damage is irreparable. It's going to take years for Russia to gain its reputation back. And won't that obviously fall on China as well? They have not tied themselves so closely to Russia, that is, they have not said, we support everything Russia does, and we are in their camp. They've said all along, we want peace, we want negotiations. Their official position uh, is very clear, but they are also now being closely watched to see, are they actually supporting Russia in meaningful mm. ways? That is, costing the sanctions. We've talked briefly about this, that they gave a backdoor off the sanctions early, early on by reaching agreement on uh, the start of the Olympics for a long-term uh, contract for oil and gas. But now they are being very cautious not to cross the line in violating the global sanctions. I just read that the uh, oil companies supported, the state-backed oil companies are being told, do not take on any brand new contracts, but don't violate your old contracts. So they're being very cautious. They cannot afford uh, to be called a sanctions buster either. I don't have any sympathy for their position whatsoever. They are caught in between wanting to show they are global good citizens and potential leaders of the world, and at the same time backing what clearly are war crimes and crimes against humanity. And that does wash over on them. The longer they maintain this position, the more untenable it becomes. Professor Elliot Tepper with us, political science, Carleton University, China and Russia. Uh, is it a bromance? Is it a love affair? Or is it just one of convenience? Elliot, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Oh, thank you, Scott. Same to you. Joining us now, Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, columnist with your Hamilton Spectator, coming up right after the 6 o'clock news, and is with us now. Scott, how are you? I hope you're doing well. Scott, do you know what today is? This, this, uh, this, right, this chat right now is the most appropriate thing of all of things that people will have heard today, having having two Scots on the radio at the same time on National Tartan Day. <laughs> I never knew that. I'm very yeah. excited now. I wish I had, I wish I had worn some. Mm. Will should have been playing the bagpipes to bring me in, not the whatever you know. But yes, that's uh, uh, although that was great too. No, you don't want bagpipes. Then I start crying. Uh, all right. Uh, I wanted to ask you about, uh, you know, because it's a bra moonlit knit to knit. Uh, anyway, um, Tiger Woods at the Masters. I mean, yeah. it was, wasn't that long ago. We weren't sure this guy would even walk again. Uh, but what do you, he thinks he can do it. And, boy, if he's there mentally, you know he certainly can. What, what are your thoughts on all this? Well, just before I answer that question, a little a little local side note today. So on Wednesday of the Masters every year, they have a par three contest. And yep. it's kind of a fun thing, but uh, some of the players take it, you know, they, they don't not try. Anyway, the uh, co-winner of the Master of the Par 3 today was Mackenzie Hughes from Dundas. Oh, very which, cool. Yeah. Which is very cool. Now, the only downside is nobody who's won the Par 3 has ever won the Masters in the same year. So, you know, mm. uh, that's it. Now, back to Tiger Woods. Um, yeah, you know what? I, I don't think that there is a single solitary person other than Tiger Woods who was asked this question um, who believes that he could win, although he was asked the question this week, and he said, yes, I do believe that I can win it. Uh, yeah. You know, it, but I, whether he can or can't, Scott, whether his leg is going to be causing him discomfort and all the rest of the stuff, it doesn't really matter, I don't think, because especially for the folks in the CBS executive offices, who just saw their ratings go up by 50% at least yeah. because Tiger Woods is playing. Yeah. And frankly, for fans who, you know, Phil Mickelson is not there because of some of the stuff going on in Phil Mickelson's world. And there really isn't another guy who is the player that you right now have to tune yeah. in to watch. There's lots of great players. Tiger Woods is still at 46, 47, whatever he is now. He is still the guy that drives the ship. And so Tiger Woods showing up 
and playing, even if it's only Thursday, Friday, and even if he shoots 300 both days, everybody around the Masters is still delighted that he's back because that's, he's going to have such an impact on everything that happens there. Honestly, if he showed up and just sold hot dogs, he'd probably draw a crowd, uh, and many will tune in just to see if he can do it. You know, you say that, and yet <laughs> if he did that, if he set up a hot dog stand, the gallery around that stand would be bigger than it would be for some of the players who are playing, which is you know, unfortunate to the players, but it, it really does. I mean, we had this conversation on my show the other night. And it, I have to believe that it is a concern for the PGA Tour down the road because Tiger Woods is still the guy, but he is now in the twilight of his competitive age where he can presumably contend for tournaments. What happens when he retires? This is something that's going to be of great concern, I think, to golf because there isn't the next Tiger Woods looming yet. But you know what, Scott? We were, we were saying that years ago. Uh, we when said it he after, was well, having his said it after Arnold Palmer when he was, and then after Jack yep. Nicholas for sure, for sure they did. Uh, I mean, he's had it like you know, but long before the crash, he had his peaks and valleys. So you know, I mean, again, I think it's a draw just because people want to see if he can do it again. Of course they do, of course they do. But you know, the thing that you, that you know, in this day and age, the fact that Tiger Woods not only wins and has won, but that he is multiracial and that he is. Uh, a, a sort of a personality that draws people's attention. He had like it's everything that you want in this era. He was that, and as you just said, whether you whether you think it was a good thing or a bad thing, he also added drama because some of the stuff he did with his wife and the golf club through the window and the crash that he just had. <laughs> it, there was always something going on with Tiger Woods. He was always in the news. And I, that's, you know, there, there are going to be great players that come up behind him. There's unquestionably going to be amazing players that come along down the road. I don't know. It's not, it's not going to be easy to find someone who has all those pieces that you can put together into one package that'll do what he's done. Not quite the storyline, that's for sure. Scott Radley with us, host of the Scott Radley Show. It's coming up right after the 6 o'clock news, and you can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. As always, Scott, thanks for the time, and uh, have a great show tonight. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. As always, you, uh, for paying attention, listening, and participating in the show, we love to, we love it whenever you do that. And as always, we leave it to you, in this case, Lynn, to have the last word. Lynn, I am wondering why in Hamilton we need so much health care and we're getting an LRT that goes from nowhere to nowhere at great expense. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.